but I want you to think about some of the weird things we pray about. I don't know if you've thought about this. Uh, let's see. Jamie, you teaching your little boys to say their prayers good night? I figured you were. You know, one of the prayers, I was taught the Lord's Prayer, uh, and, and, and that was good. And for years, I thought we were praying the liver. I think I told you all that. But uh, the thing is, is that another, th- before I even learned that, I learned, now I lay me, y'all say it with me, you know it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Don't you think that's a scary prayer for a little kid to be praying? I think that's one of the reasons why I still have a hard time going to sleep at night. You know, I mean, the last thing I'm left with is you might die before the morning, you know. So, you know, and I'm left with that thought. You know, it was comforting to know that if I died, but then I'd start thinking, Am I good enough to get to heaven? You know, if I die before I wake, what if I'm not good enough? You know, uh, what if I hadn't gotten everything taken care of yet? You know, I, anyway, so, uh, and then we tell them after all that, if we, after you pray that prayer, night, night, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. You know, I'm sure little kids are just going to go to bed so nice and comfortable, you know, after that sweet night night time don't you think okay but uh and then uh super bowl bowl evening this evening let's uh uh yeah any of y'all praying for your team to win good good i'm glad to see y'all yeah i don't think god really cares who wins the super bowl uh but i think he cares about how people behave at the super bowl and uh won't go any deeper in that than that but how many of y'all have traditions and you watch the Super Bowl at home uh, when it's on? Let's see your hands. Okay. How many of you have food traditions that go along with that? Let's see your hand. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, the prayer we pray before we eat, many of you probably pray this prayer. Uh, uh, somehow we pray, uh, we thank you for this food. We ask that you nourish it to our bodies. Did y'all pray that? We ask that you nourish, nourish it to our bodies. Okay. The thing is, think about the junk food that you eat before you say those prayers. I mean, you got your Big Mac and your fries and, and your Diet Coke, of course, you know. And, uh, and you're asking the Lord to perform a miracle as you eat your food, aren't you? Please make these hot wings and uh, buffalo sauce and uh, whatever else that you're going to have. Please make this be for us like lean grilled chicken breast, uh, broccoli and kale, right? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm I'm grateful for food like that, but uh, I'm trying to listen to my. You know, I told you my words. How I'm I'm really trying to listen to my words, and some of our prayers are so rote that they don't even fit what we're doing. And so uh, I just encourage you to listen to those prayers. I mean, it's better to pray just about any rote prayer than not to pray at all. But I think it's better 
to pray just from your heart, you know. But sometimes it's a witness in a restaurant to pray, you know, even just a little short, brief prayer. But that is a witness whenever you pray. But we've been praying or we've been looking at different prayers for things that uh, we uh, we need in our lives and that uh, edify the Christian church and edify us as believers and help us to be the church. And notice the pattern is I pray for this so that this. That's the pattern of these prayers. And so in this particular prayer, uh, Paul prays that the God who gives endurance and encouragement would give you, first of all, the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had. Attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had. What is that attitude? Think about it. That attitude is that he loved you so much that he died for you. We have a stark reminder today of that attitude that he had within him for each one of you. He loved you so much that he was willing to die in your place, that your sins would be forgiven and that your life could be redeemed from the pit. That you have the same attitude toward each other so that with one mind, so that with unity, one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. And remember, he didn't accept you when you got all cleaned up and had everything all put in order. He accepted you while you were unlovable and unlovely. And you realized that you couldn't stop being like that. And all you could do was come to him just as you were, just as Christ accepted you. He's calling on us to accept one another before that other person's got all their ducks in a row, you see, as well, in order to bring praise to God. You see, as you conduct yourself in that way toward each other, other people are watching. People that haven't come into the kingdom yet are watching, and that brings praise to him. You know, I, as I was reading this, it reminded me of a story I heard about uh, a staunch usher in a large congregation, Mr. Beggs, we'll call him. Mr. Beggs was the chief usher for probably 50 years in this church. He was the one that always wore the white shirt and the, the tie and the suit. And uh, he made sure that everything was kept in order during the service. He was the one that if a child started crying during the worship, you'd see Mr. Beggs walk down the aisle and lean over and quietly inform uh, the parents that they had a nursery for children that, uh, in case you'd like to take them there. 
Uh, he was the one, if the teenager started uh, acting up on the front row over here, or, I'm sorry, on the back row back there. Uh, yeah, there you go. Some people remember sitting back there. Uh, he would be the one that would step over and uh, invite you to either start behaving better or to leave. Mr. Beggs was the one that made sure that they had a dignified service. One day, well into the service, just as the preacher had gotten up to preach, the door of the church opened, and in walks this young man, college-age young man with long hair, hair down to his shoulders, wearing some raggedy jeans with the uh, uh, knees torn in them, barefoot, wearing a t-shirt, and uh, it was he was dressed cleanly, but just not the way you ought to be dressing to go to church. And he bobs down the center aisle while the preacher's preaching, and he just sits down right there in the front of the pulpit area. And he's sitting there just taking it all in. And everybody was just wondering what was going to happen because as soon as he got settled, they saw Mr. Beggs coming down the side aisle heading toward this young man. They held their breath, not knowing what was going to be happening, what sort of a scene was going to take place when he got to that young man. But what they witnessed was Mr. Beggs walk up to the young man, smile and nod, sit down beside him and sit with him through the rest of the service. Well, I think that's kind of what Paul was wanting for us when he prayed that prayer. Not to just accept and be willing to uh, be around those Christians who saw things exactly like we did, but those who maybe saw things a little differently. Maybe we're not all on the same page, but we all love the same Jesus. And that was the point that he made that he was trying to get across, I think, in telling us that Jesus prayed the same prayer in a more powerful way, I think, than Paul did just before he went to the cross. When he had them together in that upper room for the Lord's Supper, he was praying and he prayed for his disciples that were there with him, that had been with him through thick and thin that he had sent out to heal the sick and to cast out demons and were now back in. And he was praying for them. And then he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. That's you. You have believed in him through their word. That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have heard that the final apologetic is the unity of the church, that that's the greatest apologetic. Apologetics are arguments for the faith. Whenever uh, we are seen 
as one body, seen caring for one another, making room for one another, loving each other in spite of our differences and our flaws. Whenever the world sees us supporting one another, when he sees us, when the world sees us in that light, they begin to think maybe there's something to this Jesus stuff. Maybe there's something to this God stuff so that the world may believe that you sent me. The greatest evangelistic tool is a unified body of Christ. The glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. And again, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Well, unity was important to Jesus. He prayed for his church before he's left. Oh, Lord, oh, oh, Father, I pray that they'll all get along together. But are we doing it? Are we getting along together? My goodness, let's thank you. The world is in just total chaos. And they would love to look on the church and see a unified body of believers. They're casting about in this chaos, looking for some answers. Are they finding them in the church? Sad to say, they're not finding them in our denomination. We are divided. We've got to face it. We are not one body. We are so divided on issues that we are about to just fall apart. And so we keep pushing for more converts. We keep pushing for greater numbers and greater giving. We keep pushing for these things when our denomination is falling apart. You talk about not seeing exactly the way things are and calling for unity when there are differences that are insurmountable. The last year we have complete statistics on right now or is the year 2013 to 2014. During that period of time, our denomination lost the equivalent. They lost 318 members a day. That is one large congregation a day for 365 days. And people will look at anything except the reason why we're really falling apart and why we're losing members. And it's because we cannot agree on the essentials. Now, the Methodist Church, our founder, uh, John Wesley, he uh, uh, he was uh, uh, one that uh, he preached a sermon called the Catholic Spirit at one time, and the the very theme of it was if my heart, if your heart is as my heart, give me your hand. Some people have taken that and twisted it, but and and trying to say that, uh, and and they try to take that and they say that we should just uh, accept the fact that. All roads lead to God. All paths lead to God. And that's not, John Wesley would not agree with that at all. You can sum up his sermon 
in saying uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And some people want to attribute that to John Wesley, but those are not his words. Some want to attribute to St. Augustine. They're not his words. Some want to attribute it to a lot of other major uh, theologians. None of their words. In fact, it was a nondescript, a little known uh, 17th century German Lutheran theologian who said those words. His name was Rupertus Meldinius. Now, y'all know a whole lot more than a lot of people know about church history. But uh, he is the one that coined the phrase in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. But those do sum up the way that the United Methodist Church has for decades looked at things. And since it's a foundation, really. But the thing that we have lost is the in essentials unity. We are not united in the essentials. And this is why we're falling apart. Those essentials are basically lined out in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I want to lift out three essentials to you quickly today. And essentials that that we should all be united and we should just embrace. We should uh, go ahead and just accept that these are so. The first, Jesus We need to accept the fact that in the Christian church, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you've got to believe that Jesus really lived, that Jesus really died on the cross, that Jesus really rose from the dead to offer you eternal life, that he really has ascended bodily into heaven, and that he is going to come back and judge the quick and the dead. Uh, It is he who holds the keys of hell and death. We need to be united in the fact that this is foundational. You can't be a Christian without the Christ. Let's face it. And yet there are people who are wanting to say, oh, we don't need uh, uh, this sort of stuff anymore. We do. Number two, the Bible. We need to accept the fact that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. It's not just a bunch of writings by different men. It is God's word. Jesus looked on all the Old Testament as God's word. And now then we have the New Testament added to it. But it's God is big enough to work through centuries to bring this all together the way that it is. And uh, that... uh, First of all, Jesus is the only way. And second, that the Bible is the word of God. We have, John, let's see, well, I'm gonna, we have three different books in the Methodist church. The book of hymns, the book of worship, the book of discipline. And there's one other book that's supposed to be a part of all this. What's that book? The Bible. The Bible, right. Who said that? Okay, yes, thank you. The Bible and John Wesley claimed to be a man of one book, not four books, not three books, one book. And he said, and I'll I'll just read his words where he says, uh, uh, I have thought I am a creature of a day 
passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safely on that happy shore. My goodness, here's the battleship thing again, is it? Uh, okay, how to land safely on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. And then he says, oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. And to him, this was the book of God. And then he says, I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. We should be united in Jesus being Son, Savior, Lord. We should be united and not arguing over Scripture. We should be united ultimately in the cross. You see, it's not the church. It's not our holiness. It's not our good works. It's uh, not our sacrifice. It's not what we have done or are promising to do, but what he has done for us and our putting our faith in that that gets us into the kingdom and into a new life right here on earth. Our unity should be, as we look around each morning, this, or this morning as we gather around the table, our unity is found in those things and ultimately in his great love for us. And as we look around as different and disparate as we are, we can look at each other and say, if you're good enough for Jesus, you're good enough for me. That's the bottom line of Christian unity. And that's what we're reminded of every first Sunday when we gather around his table. Let's gather around his table now and remember that we are united in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.